Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Alan, why don't you come on up? We are, uh, just to give you a little bit of a heads up, we're switching some things around today. Uh, one, we have got a guest speaker, and Alan Noble is here, and uh, we're going to sit down and just have a conversation with you, so it's going to feel a little different. I also want to let you know, uh, like normally whenever I finish preaching, you guys know we're getting close to the end. We're switching things around a little today, so some of our worship, we're going to have a, a lot more time for reflection, for communion, for worship at the end of our service, so uh, we're just moving things around a little bit, and so I want to kind of prepare your hearts for that so you know there'll be a chance for you to really engage as we get going a little bit further, so... Uh, Alan, welcome. Uh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. And we're excited that you're here as well. Uh, we've been talking about this, and so most of you probably have some idea who this is and what we're doing. But let me give you just the formal introduction. First off, Alan is a husband and a father of three. That's true. What ages? Uh, three, six, and nine. You did that well. well you didn't have to think. I know how old my kids that. are. Yeah. That, that's good, yeah, man. That's, a, that's impressive. Yeah, I am a dad. That's, that's a good place to be. Uh, Alan is also a, a scholar, an author, a, an editor-in-chief. He got his PhD from Baylor University, my alma mater. You got, okay, that's all yeah. we're going to go with that? Yeah. <laughs> um, teaches as an associate professor of uh, literature at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University. Is that title official? Did I say that right? What did you say? Assistant professor of literature. Yeah, associate. That sounds, yeah, that sounds, okay. that sounds plausible. Assistant to the professor of... No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different world. Um, also, as editor of uh, editor in chief of Christ and Pop Culture, has written in Christianity Today, Washington Post, The Atlantic, uh, many other places, and so uh, obviously an accomplished guy. Has written a book that we've told you a little bit about called "Disruptive Witness: Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age." And so, uh, really, um, let me pray for us, and then we'll kind of get into some of our our conversation. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to sit down and uh, meet with a friend and a a new friend that we're getting to know, Father, who's a brother in Christ. And I thank you for uh, just the way you've worked in his life and for causing our paths to intersect. Father, I pray that you'd use this conversation to to stir up our minds and our hearts and our affections for you. Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, one thing I didn't mention that I meant to mention too was that Alan's also part of a church plant, goes to Shawnee Presbyterian Church uh, in Shawnee, and so he knows a little bit about this startup church world, and, uh, and so in some ways is a brother in arms uh, in, in all things church. Uh, well, Alan, I was uh, telling you earlier that we, we live in a world, and really the premise of your book and a lot of what you, you talk about is that we live in a world that's very distracted, and there's, there's forces at work in our world that kind of push us against living a deep, meaningful life. And yet we've been in a series uh, talking about what does it look like to help wake everyday people up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. And so in the milieu of the waters in which we swim, that can sometimes be difficult. And really that's kind of the, the heart of your book, which is 
how do we, in the midst of these waters, find our way and, and find a way to be able to live a deeper and more meaningful life? So let me start out here. Uh, at the front end of the book, you, um, you really talk about living, uh, the fact that we live in a distracted and secular age. And uh, I kind of want to break down those terms, so maybe yeah. one at a time. Let's start with distracted. What does it mean that we live in a distracted age? Yeah, so um, I think today, unlike in any other point in, in human history, it is possible to wake up and be plugged in and distracted from the moment you wake up uh, to the moment you fall asleep. So uh, for many of us, for example, our alarm clock is what? Phone. Your phone, right? So, uh, the, and so what happens is, as soon as you wake up, you grab this thing to turn it off, and then you've already got it in your hand. So why not unlock it and see what's going on in the news today, right? Um, we struggle, many people struggle to, I don't know, take an elevator without checking their phone, go to the bathroom without checking the phone. Um, bathroom, really? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't pretend like you don't. <laughs> guilty, guilty. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, you know, part of the modern experience is the, the fear of missing out. Uh, we worry that we're missing out on something important, so we feel this with everything from film uh, to television shows to music to just the news, right? There's always something important going on, and so you have this kind of anxiousness about you. I need to make sure I know what's going on in my world. So we, we go through the day constantly plugged in while we're doing dishes, we're listening to podcasts or an audiobook where we're watching a TV show while driving to work, we're listening to music. Um, on our breaks, we're playing on our phone, checking text messages. It used to be the case that the sort of five to 15 minutes between the time you shut off the light to go to sleep and when you actually fell asleep were this, uh, uh, was this period where you had to face yourself. Um, and this has always been the case. Always been the case where you have to be alone with yourself. And it was kind of a terrifying time because you would, you would have to reflect back on the day and say, well, what did I do? How did I talk to people? Was I unloving? Did I sin? Where did I sin and why? Even if you did not want to think about these things, you sort of had to because you were stuck with yourself. You couldn't, for example, keep reading because the light was off. But now we have small backlit you know, LCD screens uh, in the palm of our hand. So we can really just stay distracted all day long until the sort of, you know, the phone falls on our face or on our lap, you know, whatever, uh, as, as we go to sleep. Um, so that's what I'm talking about, a distracted age. Uh, you know, I think it's notable too that these devices, both uh, smartphones, computers, websites, applications, all of these things um, have a, a, a direct incentive to get you addicted to them. Um, uh, and, and some of them uh, hire people who study something called persuasive design, sort of the same skill set you need in um, video gambling systems. How do you get people to be addicted to your app? Um, because your eyeballs, your attention, is one of the most valuable commodity uh, today. People want your attention. Apps want your attention. So, so this is what adds to that distraction, right, is that um, there are uh, uh, devices that we are, there, we are using that have been designed to capture our attention and to, to hold it. Um, and, that makes, and that's why we're all walking around with our phones. And. So talk about how, how does that affect our ability to live a deep life of reflection, a life of 
kind of reflecting on our on ourselves, but also reflecting on uh, the nature of the universe, on God, on deep questions. That kind of addiction to technology and constant yeah. distraction keeps us on the surface, doesn't it? Yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, humans are really good at avoiding themselves. Uh, we are we are very good at avoiding ourselves. Um, and many of us would rather be doing almost anything than, than be alone with our, with our own thoughts. Um, because when we're alone with ourselves, we have to take uh, accounts. We have to evaluate ourselves. We have to look back. We have to reflect. Where am I going? What am I doing? Am I living a good life? Am I a good person? Am I honoring God? And that can be frightening. Uh, we don't want to look in the mirror. Right. Nobody really likes looking in the mirror um, because it, it reveals something of ourselves that we'd rather not admit was real. Um, and throughout human history, this has been the case. So to get to your question, Jeff, um, we need space. We need cognitive space. Uh, um, periods of time in our day where we are not doing things. Now, that, um, l- let me qualify that. Um, you can be doing physical things. So, for example, I get a lot of great thinking done when I'm sweeping. Um, but, but I can sweep on autopilot, right? Like, I don't need to. Um, and you, there are lots of things like this, gardening, uh, things that you can do with your hands that you really don't have to think about. But what I think is often the case is when we do those sort of mundane tasks, we try to fill that space because we feel like I'm wasting time by sweeping. I need to be listening to music or a podcast. I'll have the TV on in the background. But those are the periods where we can just have silence. And what I fear that we lose is, as Christians, the opportunity to be convicted of sin. Because um, to be convicted of sin, you have to see yourself. And if you do not have the space to see yourself, you cannot be convicted of the sin and then you won't repent of the sin and you won't change. Um, we don't like being convicted of sin because it makes us feel bad. It's not a good feeling. And that's one of the reasons why we don't wanna be alone with our thoughts. Um, you know, I, I've heard a comedian say that we would much rather check our phone while we're driving and potentially kill someone than be alone with our thoughts. Um, and why is that? Well, I think part of the reason is, is because we do have to acknowledge our sin. We do have to acknowledge that we're not living lives that we ought to be living. So, but we have to. So that constant distraction, technology enables that. that and that's, that's something that's been around forever. It was around the Garden of Eden, that, that yep. hiding, that running, that disappearing, not Absolutely. wanting to deal with it. But technology really preys upon that and yeah. kind of, kind of teases it out. So that's a major issue that we have, a challenge that we have spiritually in our world. So let's look at the second one you talked about. You talked yeah. about secularization or uh, this challenge of secularism. Tell us, kind of define that and break that down for us. Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up when I thought about secularism or the secular, I typically thought of, of atheism. That's where I sort of equated the two. When you talk about the secular world, you talk about the atheist world. Uh, there's a, a philosopher named Charles Taylor who, who has defined it in a different way that I think is much more helpful. Um, and for him, uh, he's talking about an age, a period of time that we're living in, in which it's possible, uh, sorry, excuse me, in which there are any number of possible belief systems available to you, uh, and in which a belief in God feels less and less probable. 
okay? Now, to understand why that, because that probably just sounds like the world you've always lived in, and in fact, it is the world you've always lived in. To understand why this is different, you need to think back historically. If we were in France in the uh, 12th century, we would all be Christians. And here's the difference. This is important. Uh, if we were in that position, we would be born Christian, we'd live Christian, and we would be buried Christian. Now, all those things, Lord willing, are true of me. I was born into a Christian family, I've always gone to church, and Lord willing, I will die a Christian. Here's the difference. My entire life, I have known that I don't have to be a Christian. There are other options available. That's not to say that I've been attracted to those options, but I've known lots of people who have lived interesting lives, seemingly fulfilling lives, who are not Christian, who don't believe the same thing as I do. I know that I could be a, a, um, a Muslim, I could be a Jewish, I could be a Jehovah Witness, I could be an atheist, I could be someone who doesn't think about these big questions at all. Now, the effect that this has is in the back of my mind, I have always known that there are other options. For the medieval person, that was not the case. You were a Christian because everyone was a Christian. So, that's the modern condition. Now, now he talks about a number of characteristics of the secular age. Would you like me to go into those? Is it... Do you want to keep going? Okay, so one of them is that we live in what he calls an eminent frame. So this is how we perceive the world. We perceive the world as uh, a, a brute material world, a raw material world. Let me give you an example of this, because this is also one of those things that is so familiar, it's difficult for us to understand. Let's take rainbows. Rainbows are, I think, really helpful. Um, <clears throat> Uh, recently, I've, I've heard um, some conservative critics of the LGBTQ movement criticize rainbows because they're co-opting an image, that, uh, a symbol, a sign that God gave his people that he would never flood the earth again for something that is not biblical. Um, and I think that's, you know, setting aside all the sort of politics behind that, what I find it interesting, uh, that line of thinking is interesting to me because I don't think for most of us, we have thought about rainbows as an actual sign from God for a very, very long time. Think about this, when you see a rainbow, I think you have one of three responses, maybe all three. First, you see a rainbow and you say, hey, look, there's a rainbow, okay? Um, second, you take out your phone and take a picture of it and post it on the internet and say, on Instagram, and you say, look, here's a rainbow. Or third, you think back to your, uh, you know, grade school teacher's explanation of what a rainbow is, right? You, you sit back and say, wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. How, how are those created again? I don't remember. I was homeschooled. I don't, I don't remember. I don't feel like we, <laughs> mom didn't cover that. Um, but whatever it is, right? So you think, you think about that. Maybe after those three responses, maybe you think, Oh, that's right. God gave us this sign because he loves us and because he promised not to flood the earth again. This is a spiritual sign. It's sacred. Most of us don't reflect on that. Now, we might remember maybe the, you know, the biblical story. We saw it on felt board you know, in Sunday school, but we probably don't really reflect on it. That's an example of the way all of us, even those of us who believe in a, in a living God, 
actually perceive the world through the imminent frame. In other words, our default setting is to see the world in purely material terms, not in spiritual terms, purely material terms. One more example, saying grace. My grandparents were farmers in Iowa. Great-grandparents, that is. Great-grandparents. When my grandfather said grace over dinner, the way he perceived that grace is categorically different than what I do when I pray over my dinner. And here's why. He grew that food. And he knew that the food was only on his table was only feeding his family, his kids and his wife and himself because of God's providence. If the rain didn't come, if the sun didn't shine, he would have nothing to eat. So when he said grace, he really understood it as thanking God that he was providing food for them to eat, sustaining them through life. Now, if I want to have that same mindset, I have to work a lot harder. I have to concentrate a lot more because God's provision for me, is sort of hidden behind the supply chain. I expect to get an avocado any time of the year, right? I don't know where it was, you know, where it was grown, who, who grew it, who the farmer was. I don't know what kind of, uh, you know, weather conditions had to happen so that it, it could provide, be provided for my plate. So here again is another thing where I'm just living my life. I don't intend to see the world in purely materialist terms, but it's just sort of, how it is. And that, he says, is one of the main marks of a secular age. Even religious people, their default setting is to see the world in purely materialist terms. So I feel like one of the things that you talk about in your book um, related to that, I think, is that because we live in this world where there's not this transcendent thing that's out there, but we live in the here and now, everything's sort of self-determined. And so then our choices, our decisions become really determined by what's in us and whatever immediately gratifies that. And so uh, you talk about in terms of consumer preferences or one option among many or just lifestyle choices as opposed to a deep interaction with a transcendent being that we call God. Talk about that some. Yeah, so I, I had a friend once who, um, you know, I wanted to witness to. And so I asked him, we were hanging out and I asked him, so uh, do, you, do you believe in God? And I knew he didn't go to church, and, but, but he answered, yeah, I believe in God. And I said, oh, great, great. So I'm like, okay, this is going, this is going well. I'm going to win this one. So uh, where you, you don't go to church? Why don't, why don't you go to church? And he said to me, um, there are so many different churches, so many different denominations. How could I know which one is the right one? And that's assuming the Christian God is the right God. I know there's a God, but what if the the the, the you know, the Muslims or the, the Jews or the Buddhists or Hindu, like, how do I know? There are thousands of religions and thousands of sects and denominations within each religion. How can I even begin to sort out which one is right? So what I need to do is just live the way I think God wants me to live. Because there's not enough time in the day to find out which God is right. Now notice, Jeff, what Jeff just described, right, that turn inward, right? There are so many choices out there, I can't decide which one is the right one, so I have to just turn inward to my own inner resources. That's exactly what my friend was doing. And this is part of the result of living in a secular age. Remember what I said about knowing my whole life that I had other options. I didn't have to be a Christian. I could believe lots of other things. 
For many people, what that means is that everything is contested. Everything is contested. Everything is contested. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll just say, there are so many intelligent people out there who believe different things. There's really no way for me to, me to adjudicate. There's no way for me to figure out which one is true. The experts all disagree. So what I can do, the only thing I can do is just do what I think God would want me to do. And it's to turn inward. And so then, as a result, we start thinking in terms of, of preferences. Not what is true externally, but instead what makes sense to us, what seems authentic to us, what seems true to us, what fits our style or our preference or our attitude. Um, and, and that gets us into all kinds of trouble. And I think there's something that, you know, even as we talked about this series, I think for me, some of the place where the rubber meets the road on that, because, and this is heady stuff, right? I mean, it can be hard to wrap our brains around. But even last week of this verse we've been looking at in this series where we talk about, you know, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. There's, a, there's something there that says we received Christ from yeah. outside of us. Yes. There's something that I didn't have enough in me, so I received something from outside of me that's a relationship to Jesus, and I surrender to that as his, and call him Lord. That's very different from what you're talking about, where Absolutely. it's, I can't know anything outside of me, so I start with myself yep. and say, well, what feels good? What's my preference? What identity do I want to put on? Right. And if the faith happens to fit that, then it's like, well, high five to, the, to you on that deal. We <laughs> work sort of alike. Yeah. But if it doesn't fit, then it's like, well, I'll just go choose something else. That's right. So talk about implications. We put us out to our body and asked like, what questions they had. And one of, the pre one of the people in our church said, well, so what implications does this have for some of the kind of evangelistic approaches we've had in the past of yeah. relational evangelism and things, ways we've tried to interact with people in the world in which we live? How does that shape uh, yeah. those interactions? So let me give you a scenario. Let's say, um, kind of similar to the scenario I just gave you with my friend, let's say you, know, you uh, have a coworker who you wanna share the gospel with, so you go out to lunch and you say, you know, I, I've started to go to uh, you know, Redemption Church and uh, man, it's really, it's changed my life. I mean, it's changed my family. I, I was so depressed uh, in my, my marriage that we were fighting and the kids were crazy and I just felt lifeless and then we start coming to this church and now uh, I'm rejuvenated and my marriage is working and my kids aren't as terrible. Uh, can you guys accomplish that? Because I got some kids. Uh, <laughs> Keep going. We'll, we'll anyway. Try, we'll try to help. Okay. <laughs> we'll work on your uh, patience. Any, anything, For yeah. the spirit dealing with it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so, you know, I say, you know, this church has just changed me. And my friend says, wow, that's really great. You know, I've, I've started doing CrossFit. And uh, man... You know, uh, you know, it's really changed my life as well. I just feel a lot more focused and, you know, my marriage is also doing really well now and, you know, all these things. And so I say, well, yeah, but, you know, Christianity and the, and the cross. And I say, well, you know, um, and so he says, well, how do you know Christianity is true? And I say, well, there's historical evidence of the resurrection. And maybe my coworker says, well, maybe, but, you know, I've, I've heard lots of, you know, scholars say that that didn't even happen. Now, I can pull out some of my own scholars, or, or maybe not, and uh, in the end, I say, well, you know, if, you know, if you're interested, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll bring a, you know, a flyer 
to work tomorrow? And he says, yeah, well, you know, if you're interested in CrossFit, I think it would really help you. Uh, I'll, I'll bring you a little pamphlet. Um, Let's be honest, I could use a little CrossFit. There's your book. You, know, there's some you and me both. There, right? You and me both, yeah. Uh, so we leave this conversation, and he's thinking, you know, Alan really needs, Alan really needs to start working out. You know, he really needs to get to the gym. It's really going to help his life. And, and I start thinking, you know, so maybe what I do is I, you know, tweet hashtag evangelism and say, you know, I had this great experience, you know, pray for this guy or something or post to Instagram. Um, or I start thinking about the, the arguments that I could have used. Oh, I should have said this and I should have said this and I should have said this. But at the end of the day, I think in that interaction, neither of us actually wagered anything. Both of us entered that conversation and understood it as a kind of game. What I offered him was uh, part of my identity. Here's what makes me tick. Here's what I enjoy. Here's what fi I find fulfilling. And he did the same for me. And uh, while we debated a bit, there was no sense in, sense in which we were actually talking about real things. Instead, he perceived Christianity as something just like CrossFit, something just like uh, leadership training, something just like uh, essential oil, something just like you know, being the perfect parent, right? Uh, or, or getting straight A's, or whatever it might be. In other words, he saw this just as an option, a lifestyle option. And here's what, here's what I'm worried about. When we have conversations about the gospel, if the person we're talking to only perceives Christianity as just another lifestyle option, okay, um, they're not going to come. And if they do come to church, they're going to be motivated uh, because they feel like it fits their personal style. And there will come a time in their life when the Christian walk gets too hard when the gospel says, you need to lay down this sin because this is not godly. And then that person is going to think, well, what's closer to my identity? What's closer to being authentic to me? What's tr closer to being true to who I am, this sin or the gospel? And if they came because it was a matter of authenticity or style or personal preference, they're going to find something else. So I think that, to me, that's where, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep moving for the sake of time. I think that, that's where this idea that kind of you've put forward of disruptive witness, the idea of disruption, uh, because I think part of what you're saying there is if, if something's not disrupted so that their kind of whole paradigm of life in the world right. doesn't, isn't shaken, they're not going to come in and surrender to Christ as Savior and Lord. They're going to adopt this as an identity for a season until a different identity looks better and they're going to kind of like putting on a coat and taking off a coat and keep exactly. moving down the path. So uh, let's shift gears slightly into some of kind of where you go in your book with what are some of the disruptive, and you kind of break disruptive practices we could have and you broke it down kind of in three categories. One is disruptive personal habits. Uh, yeah. Let's start there. Okay. Uh, what do you mean by disruptive personal, or why, why is it we need to be disrupted yeah. individually? So uh, for, for two reasons, based on what I talk about in the first half of the book and I've discussed with you guys right now, um, the condition that I'm describing, uh, distraction and secularism, affects the church 
almost just as much as those outside of the church, which is part of the reason why this is so alarming. Again, uh, so, so for the reasons, you know, why is this such a big deal? Well, again, if we're not reflecting on our, our sin, if we're not reflecting on our walk, then we're not going to be able to grow in Christ-likeness. So that's a problem. Um, another aspect of this is that, um, frankly, we're not going to be able to delight in God's world if we don't allow ourselves the cognitive space to enjoy uh, creation, if we can't perceive creation and attend to it, pay attention to attend to it, then we won't delight in it. That, that includes, you know, uh, you know, what we call nature, but also fellow humans. How are you going to love a spouse or a child or a neighbor if you don't attend to them and their particular needs and where they are in life? All right. And, and the third thing I would say is that, that our neighbors are watching us. And if they see us doing Christianity in a way that, that they, where they perceive it as, again, a lifestyle option primarily or an identity choice, right, then they're going to say, ah, I thought so. Christianity isn't the capital T truth. It's just a choice. So we have to be living out a disruptive witness. We have to be living out the reality that this isn't a lifestyle option. This isn't a, a choice that we have. It's not us saying, well, I'm going to choose to interpret the world as if it were created by a living and loving God. We're saying, I am recognizing the reality that this world is created by and is preserved and sustained by a living and loving God. Okay? That's very different because as you talked about earlier, that means it's coming from outside of us and we're just admitting this is reality as opposed to saying, ah, I'm going to interpret the world this way because I think this is true to me in my experience. So that's why it's so important. I mean, good stuff. Let me, uh, I want to read one quote that I think from this section of your book yeah. that I think is helpful. Uh, you said, uh, Christ's lordship must extend beyond our morality. It must seep into our bones and affect the way we live and move in the world as a work of divine creation. And for that, we need a habitual movement toward God. Did I talk write that? To, you did write that. Okay. It's good. It's it? been a while. Uh, yeah. Uh, talk to us about that. What, what is, how do we create a habitual movement toward yeah. God? So remember what I talked about, the imminent frame, right? So even as believers, it's difficult for us to recognize that the rainbow is actually a sign from God. It's difficult for us to recognize that our food is provision from God. Another way of understanding this is that it's difficult for us, even though cognitively, if you ask me, do you believe in a living God? who's omnipotent and omnipresent? I would say, yes, yes. Cognitively, yes. But do I feel like, do I intuitively understand the world as created and sustained by a living God, a God who loves me? Um, that's hard. That's hard to keep in mind for all of the, you know, for various reasons that I can't get into. So what I'm saying is that we have to have habits that force us to acknowledge this is God's world. This is God's world. Um, now, I think Matthew, I believe it's 516 is, is, is helpful here because there uh, Jesus talks about doing our good works so that others can see. This verse always troubles me because I'm like, I do work so others can see? Jesus, you want me to be showing off? This doesn't make any sense. But then he has this twist, right? Um, so that they can see your good works and glorify God in heaven. How does that even work? 
So I do good things, and people see me doing good things, and instead of just looking at me and praising me or being grateful to me for doing these things, they actually look upward. There's a kind of reflection. In the book, I call this a a kind of double movement. And I want to suggest that this is the proper posture that we need to have to all gratitude and all thankfulness and all beauty in the world. When we are, uh, when we see a child, our child that, that we love, if our attention is only on how much we love them, then we miss the greater glory, which is moving that gratitude for this God giving us this child up to thank God. The same thing when you see a, a, you know, a sunset, a flower, a spouse, when God provides for you in, in, in some way. When we see things where, uh, that, are, that are lovely and glorious and good, we need to have a practice where we're acknowledging where this comes from because our society is going to condition us to just look at the thing that is lovely or enjoyable or pleasant and to enjoy it and stop there. And that is kind of a selfish response, right? I enjoyed this, it was pleasing to me. But as Christians, we're called to have a double movement, to delight in this good and then to thank God for it. And that's the way I think of breaking through that eminent frame. Man, good, 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 good stuff. Um, this is killing me because we're gonna. There's so much I want to talk about. Uh, if you guys want to see me totally geek out, uh, literature guy, literature guy, Cormac McCarthy, Flannery, like yeah. I want to talk about all this other stuff. But uh, <laughs> for their sake, I'm going to stay focused on uh, a few other uh, things. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about church practices just yeah. a bit. Um, one of the things you talk about is James K. Smith's phrase that we are liturgical animals. Yeah. Um, tease that out for us. What's, that, what's he referring to there? Yeah, so, I mean, we all have uh, liturgies. Humans are created for and shaped by habits, um, habits that, that, that form our hearts and our loves. And the church for 2,000 plus years has acknowledged um, and prior to that, the, you know, the, 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 the temple system has acknowledged that that's how our hearts are. That's how human, God created us. And so we have church services that, that acknowledge that reality, that, we, that habits form us, and um, you know, we use that to glorify God. And uh, one of the other ideas that shows up there is kind of this this danger of what you what you call excarnation, or what Charles yeah. Taylor calls excarnation. Of we become disembodied forms that are just kind of heads on a stick, you know, coming into church, keeping everything. It's all about me, and it's all about whatever my thoughts are. But that's as far as worship goes. How should our gatherings push us outside of kind of me and my head yeah. and my own thoughts, that in, inward uh, look? Yeah, I remember growing up, I felt like I could go into church. And I could stay in my own head the entire time, right? Because um, when I was singing, I was just singing to God, right? It was just me and God. When I was praying, it was just me and God. I was with other people, but I was alone with them. Um, and I, when I heard the sermon, it was just me mulling it over. That was it. Um, that's, that's, that's wrong, that's not how we are, are called to do things. So I think, for, you know, one thing is, you know, a greeting of peace, you know, uh, 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 is, is uh, saying hi to people. As an introvert, I do not like, I don't like this. I don't like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go around saying hi to people. It is not my natural uh, predisposition at all. It makes me very uncomfortable. In fact, I would actually prefer that model of church that I grew up with 
That's, that's my preference. I would rather stay in my head. I don't want to be embodied. I don't want to sing loud enough so my neighbors can hear, even though Paul commanded me to encourage other believers with hymns and spiritual songs. He also commanded all of you, not just me, not personally, right? Um, I, I, I don't want to share communion, which is a communal, I mean, it's in the word, guys, communal bodily practice, right? Um, so all of those things force us out of our heads and into our bodies, which is what, how God created us. Again, as you said, we're not heads on sticks. We are embodied beings. That's how God made us, and that's how we need to serve him and worship him. Um, I mean, one of the things you say in your book that I loved was if we attend a healthy church, there ought to be something every week that makes us feel unsettled or uncomfortable. Uh, this is something I agree with and actually enjoy. But people, you know, I hear people say all the time, like, I don't want to do the meet and greet. It's like, well, that's probably good for you. You yeah. probably need to be drawn out of yourself. That's well, right. I don't like to confess my sin. Well, we're called to Who do that. Like, there's yeah. probably all, things all throughout a service that God is really using those things to kind of disrupt us. Yeah. And he uses the, the, the gathering of the church and worship to disrupt us intentionally so he can transform us. But talk about the importance of some of those things and just what, maybe a couple examples. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I think, you know, the greeting of peace, you know, uh, uh, greeting other people, um, it does make me uncomfortable, but that's because my heart needs to be formed. It's disordered. Um, I, my preference is to just be by myself and to be selfish, right? And so here's a practice in my church community which forces me to change my loves because my, my default is to love myself and not want to greet my neighbor. And the church says, mm, nope, don't get to do that. You've got to love. And the liturgy, the practice of doing this every Sunday is a way of reshaping my heart towards Christ-likeness, which is what needs to happen. I think the Lord's Supper is, you know, it is the, the central um, example of this. In the Lord's Supper, here's a, here's a practice that um, where we are embodied, we take and eat, we smell, we taste, uh, we do this as a community, and uh, we acknowledge that when we do this, it's not just in our heads, right? The, 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 the bread and the wine is not just something in our heads. It's not purely cognitive. That in some way, and I don't know exactly, but Christ is communing with us. We are, it is a communion table. It is the Lord's table, and we are communing with him. And that means it's an experience that breaks through that imminent frame, that secular world, that basic understanding that we have. This is saying, no, in this moment, as we share the Lord's Supper together, we are acknowledging a reality and we are participating with something that is irreducible to a strictly materialist account of the world. It's bigger than that. Um, so that, I think, is a, is a habit that pushes back against what we normally think of in life. Man, I'd love to spend time here. The you guys, that is so significant. I don't know if you even realize how important that is, but what that means is that infuses every second of our being together with meaning and with depth uh, that, that's essential for our own spiritual development. So when you're greeting someone and shaking their hands, you need to go through that double movement he talked about where you said, this is my brother because they've received Christ Jesus, my Lord, and this is my sister. And so you're greeting them and it goes beyond just to like, I guess I have to shake his hand and say, hey, how are you? But there's something spiritual that's, that's happening there. When we come to the table, there's something humbling that says, man, this is not 
rich or poor, white or brown, uh, male, female. Like we all come to the table together and there's an acknowledgement in that of, I mean, we are all coming as beggars in need of bread to a savior who's the bread of life. And, and there's something spiritual about that movement. And so we need to talk more about that. But uh, I want us to talk a little, about, a little bit about cultural participation. Um, and let's just focus here. To what, talk to me about the importance of stories and songs and art and other cultural artifacts to create bridges of yeah. relationship for us and to connect people to a transcendent God through kind of humility and grace in, in those interactions. Uh, and there's a lot there. Uh, do the best yeah. you can. Yeah, sure. So the, the, the cultural situation, the societal situation I've described is one in which most of us struggle to even conceive of the idea that there might be a transcendent God, a God who's transcendent and um, imminent through the incarnation. We're also a people that struggle to pay attention, to attend to things. We're afraid of being alone with ourselves. When we feel that conviction, both as Christians, but then also non-Christians, as they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, uh, it's easier for them to turn on something, to leave the TV on in the background, to, you know, to play on their phone for an hour, and wait until that guilt, that feeling of anxiety or dread just goes away so they don't have to think about it. I think for a lot of people, um, a smartphone is self-medication to deal with anxiety. In any case, so here's what cultural artifacts do. There are some movies, songs, novels that unsettle us. I'm sure you all have seen some of these, right? You go watch a movie and you come out and you're haunted by it. And I, I'm not saying like the, the kind of movie where you think, wow, I want to go live in that world, right? So that's kind of the response to Star Wars or something, right? But, or Marvel or whatever the kids are watching these days. But, but instead, the kind of movie that you see it and you're haunted by it, you're like, this weighs on my heart. Um, that is, uh, uh, it, it could be something, it could be because the movie was about something tragic, the loss of a loved one, let's say. Or it could be, a positive thing. It could be a film that explores beauty in a way that, that haunts you, that leaves you wanting more. Well, in both of these situations, we've been unsettled. Our normal daily experience has been unsettled. And so I would suggest to you that experiences of great beauty and great sorrow are both opportunities, are, are both experiences that sort of shatter uh, our worlds for a moment and unsettle us, and those are also opportunities for Christians to come alongside and offer an interpretation of that experience that validates it, that says what you're feeling is not wrong. So that, 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 that delight in the beauty that you're feeling is not a wrong thing, it's actually uh, creational. Because everybody feels this. I'll tell you, um, there's this motif in literature and film and so on. When a loved one dies, often characters describe this, the, what they feel as this confusion that life continues on. There's a kind of frustration. Why are people going to work? This person who I loved is dead. How can they go to work? How can people go to school? How can, the world should stop. That's the feeling. And, and you'll see it throughout literature. The world should stop. And why is that? Because we believe when we experience an intimate relationship with someone, we acknowledge that this person should not disappear. That they 
should be eternal in some sense. We understand intuitively that, that people were created for eternity. So um, through sorrow and also through beauty, uh, I, I think we have opportunities where people are acknowledging, are, are going to naturally gravitate towards thinking about these big issues that otherwise they might push away. And that's an opportunity for us to come alongside and say, yeah, there's a reason you feel like the world should stop moving when you lose a loved one. There's a reason that you feel like the birth of your child is somehow transcendent. It's not just the birth of one kid in one hospital. It's something monumental. There's a reason for that because they're created in the image of God. So I think, I think cultural works provide great opportunities for us to come alongside people, experience those things together, and then share an interpretation from, you know, from Christianity. Man, such good stuff. Um, I could talk for a long, long time. Um, let's do this. If you had a last word, maybe what this has meant for you personally, or yeah. a last charge to us, kind of how would you put a bow on this? I would say that we need to have grace for ourselves. Um, rather, we need to acknowledge God's grace for us. I, I've described a world and I've described technology that is constantly distracting us. And, and I fear that, you know, and, and this is a common reaction to this book is that people want to say, they want to get a list of rules. Well, tell me what I need to do to make, <laughs> sort of like the, you know, the uh, rich young man, right? Tell me what I need to do to get right, right? Give me the list of things. And my heart works that way too. I want a list. Tell me what I need to do, and then I can know that I've saved myself, all right? Um, life is very difficult, and the society we have pushes us to not recognize the reality that this is a created universe. Uh, it pushes us to deny the fact that God exists. It pushes us to forget. It pushes us to be distracted and anxious and um, consuming, and it's difficult to live as a Christian in this environment. So I, I, I've said a lot of things and I say a lot more in the book to challenge us, but I also want us to recognize that none of us is going to nail this perfectly because we are swimming upstream and things are not gonna change overnight. And what we have to do is rest in the reality that, that God loves us and that he is in charge of his church and he is guiding it. And so it's not up to us to fix all the world's problems. And, to, um, and that's, I mean, that's our only hope. Yeah, that's great stuff. Um, friends, why do we take a day out to do this? I think, here's what I want you to know is we, we're here to serve you and help you grow. That's what we want to do as a church. And we believe that God has spoken to us in his word. Um, but we, we're called to live out this word. And, and Christ says, I, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. We want you to have a deep, meaningful life in Christ. But we also want to be honest about the waters we swim in. And these are the waters that we swim in in our world. And if we are blind to that, I think we'll, we'll fall subject to those things by accidentally kind of uh, inconsequent, or, or there'll be unintended consequences to our actions by not realizing kind of what the waters are like that we're swimming in. And so to realize God has somehow spoken into that and has given us some guidance and direction. And the church is here to foster that deep life in us. And so that's what we want to be about. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to learn from a friend. Thank you for the things that you have taught him and shown him. Father, I pray 
for just blessing on his ministry to his students. Uh, Father, thank you for Alan and for his family and their willingness to give him some space to be with us this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that you would continue to uh, to just bless them and give him wisdom and guidance, he and his wife, as they raise uh, their children and as they um, as they interact with, in, in your namesake in our world. Father, I pray that people would look at, at him and they would glorify you because of the good works that they see. Uh, Father, for us, Father, would you would you do work in our hearts as we practice uh, moving forward this morning, the things that we've been talking about? Um, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.